Okay, hello and welcome to the Tree Planners podcast for March 2022. And this week, uh, Margaret and I, Margaret's over there virtually. I'm looking hello. at her on my screen. There she is. And uh, we're joined by Madeline Fournier of uh, Stop Sprawl Aurelia, and I'm sure like another another whole bunch of initiatives she's probably involved in. But I think we're mostly going to be talking about sprawl today and uh, farmland preservation, natural heritage preservation, and things like that. So welcome, Madeline. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here and talk about stopping sprawl. It's our favorite. It's our favorite topic. <laughs> it is one of our favorites. So people are like, oh my gosh, how much more can these people talk about sprawl? Like, I think we get it by now. <laughs> yeah. Well, on that point, um, you, Margaret, you want to uh, you want to do a, a brief uh, synopsis of that uh, analysis that Emma McIntosh just pub- published today. Uh. I can. Um, she, Emma McIntosh from the Narwhal, uh, did an article. She FOI'd Freedom Information Request, uh, Ministry of Natural Resources, Ontario's minister, Ministry of Natural Resources, uh, to see what they thought this report that they were supposed to release but then didn't uh, on the status of wetlands and uh, biodiversity and that sort of thing across uh, Ontario and find out that wetlands are in decline, which most of us that are paying attention already know, and that it's getting worse under this existing government. Um, And she also brought up, you know, one of our other pet projects, which is uh, opposing the Bradford Bypass, was talking about how, you know, even wetlands being so problematic, um, their health and declining and how important for biodiversity, we're still plowing highways through them. So that's my synopsis. You probably have a better... uh, better way to talk about it than I do Adam but that was what I got out of it no no you're the one with the with the with the good head for details uh and I I I mean I think that sort of the important element of it that I saw anyways was the tension between what the government is pushing as I mean they're, they're framing it as um you know uh, economic growth and recovery from COVID and and these sorts of things stronger, better, all, all these terms that they use to try and sell things to the public. Uh, but in the meantime, they are trying to hide the impacts that that particular agenda will have on all Ontarians. I mean, this is the, this is the core thing about environmentalism is it's not, it's not, it's not an individual thing, right? It's a common good. It's something that's accessible to all of us and, and, and that benefits all of us. So when the environment is impacted, that's an impact that is borne by all Ontarians. But when a subdivision is built uh, or a strip mall is built, not all Ontarians benefit from that. You know, it's primarily mm-hmm. the developer who who profits mostly and, uh, and then, you know, perhaps the operator of that mall and these sorts of things. But... So there's that tension there, and I think that tension is highlighted by the fact that they tried to prevent this information from being public. Mm-hmm. And you know, to build onto that, Adam, when you're saying about how it's good for the economy, I just read another article today. Uh, sorry to the author, but uh, I can't remember who it was now. Talking about uh, a York University professor, I believe estimated that the amount of money that's being put into highways, you could actually put that money into building retrofits and you would create more jobs and do obviously more for the climate than building a highway. Um, so, you know, that's, that's all really interesting how, how it's always like, Oh, if we build, if we pave this over, think of all the economic benefits when really there are, maybe potentially larger benefits without as much damage that people aren't really wanting to look into because frankly, like this is just how we do it. You know, this, this is what we know and this is what we build and this is how we pave it and raise it. And then we're not willing to compare against alternatives. Right. Well, and that, that economic benefit um, argument is 
a very fraught one, the way that's mm-hmm. presented to the public, you know, that there's a, there's an e- economic benefit to building a highway because you can transport goods, get market and get goods to market faster, uh, reduce congestion. So people spend less time sitting in their cars and more time, you know, more time at work or, you know, the nicer part of that might be more time at home with their family doing things that they actually want to be doing. Um, not that everybody doesn't want to work, uh, you know, there's people out there who love their jobs, but anyways, I'm getting distracted. Uh, but economic activity uh, typically has externalities. And, you know, if you've listened to us talk or read anything that we've written or, or most, we often mention the, the externalities of um, of development of economic activity. And basically that's the knock on impacts that aren't captured by the, um, by the activity itself. Right. So you can build, you could build a highway and uh, that has sort of immediate and obvious costs, such as you're losing the land underneath the highway that might otherwise be available to animals uh, for habitat or uh, for farmers for growing food. Um, But we're starting to learn that, well, you know, this has actually been around for a little while. There's uh, within or maybe outside external to economics, there's a couple of fields. There's environmental economics and ecological economics. And ecological economics is sort of a step further than environmental economics. And these really sort of interrogate the externalities and the full cost that economic mm-hmm. activity has. And those these fields have been around for a while, but they're clearly not in uh, the public you know, well-known in the public discourse around, uh, economics. Um, so to wrap this up, uh, I'll, I'll try to wrap this up kind of quickly because we've already gotten, uh, sort of slightly off topic and Margaret and I are ranting on <laughs> here about the, the stuff the that we always Madeline. rant on. Huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, you know, but but we're 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 understanding. For instance, and the big one is uh, that greenhouse gases result from the activity ultimately that takes place on those highways that are built, and that's an externality because we all pay um, for the impacts of that. Uh, we discovered when back when there was leaded gasoline and before we had catalytic converters that there was a really negative impact that lead was having on people who, and especially people who lived near highways, which tended to be racialized, marginalized people in, in poor areas where highways tended to be situated. And there's a really surprising stat that came out just recently that uh, um, argues that about 50% of the adult population in the United States actually has suffered brain damage because of this. Which is crazy mm-hmm. when you think. I mean, it's totally mind-boggling. Um, mm-hmm. But that's an externality, right? That's a cost. So if you think about the economic benefits that come from creativity, from imagination, from inspiration, from all these, you know, so-called thought leaders like to talk a lot in a big game about innovation. In my opinion, that's not very imaginative to use that word. But uh, the economic benefits that could have accrued from that collective spark that was lost because of the uh our reliance basically just simply our reliance on fossil fuels in the car um is is something to think about and that's what's that's what an externality is so just that is very, my long-winded way of getting at that economic activity argument that is often made for these types of developments and as we just sort of mentioned this uh, analysis that Emma McIntosh managed to get or wrote about these uh, documents mm-hmm. she got with the FOI, the loss of wetlands, the loss of natural habitat, um, agricultural land, all these sorts of things. These are, you know, these are the externalities that come from uh, this development agenda that this government has been so aggressive in pushing. Yeah, and that's for sure. And that's the, sure. talk, that's, that's the topic of our, of our podcast. <laughs> that's a really good segue um, <laughs> because we have Madeline on here today. And there has been uh, before, you know, I'll kind of go into how I met Madeline. Um, but there has been a movement and people may have known it in Hamilton or in Halton or Peel or Durham. There's, there tends to be these stop sprawl kind of uh, campaigns popping up because just like you said, Adam, 
people are kind of feeling that there's got to be something better than just strip malls and ticky tacky housing, which actually does nothing to help with the affordability of housing. It does nothing about creating a community, it does nothing for our food security. I mean, it goes on and on and on. So um, I was pulling some people together about, you know, let's see if, you know, Aurelia was going through its MCR process at Land planning, pulling some people together. And Madeline uh, popped on. This is how I remember it, Madeline. Um, and then wrote me an email shortly after saying, do you think we should start like a stop sprawl really? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Let's have a meeting. And like, you want to head it up? Like you go for it, girl. And so Madeline has, along with a few others, have been um, really instrumental in bringing back a vision to what governments are supposed to be looking at, which is how do we make our community stronger? And you and I, Adam, we went to the Inch Farm, which is one of the wetlands that potentially could be taken over um, with a really wanting to expand its boundaries. But anyways, that's how I met Madeline. And she is a, a rising star within the local organizing community, I would say, and been really um, uh, fortunate to kind of work with her closely. So that's great. So Madeline, welcome. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you had to twiddle your thumbs while Adam and I ranted on about lots of stuff. It happens to all the guests, so don't worry. So just to start, why don't you lay out for the people listening, if, they, if they're not familiar, what happens, what's happening with Aurelia. What is the, the thing that's, that's happening in Aurelia that caused Stop Sprawl Aurelia to, to come to life? Yeah, so in, I think, November of 2021, the city of Aurelia announced that they got consultants to make this land needs assessment, um, and it was determined that Aurelia doesn't have enough lands within the city to accommodate for population growth, because um, government, Ontario government is mandating municipalities to plan for population growth to, to the year 2051, obviously, and um, yeah, so Aurelia got this land needs assessment, it was determined we don't, have, we don't have enough room within the boundary to accommodate population, and so we need to expand the boundary. Um, so they announced this and shared the land needs assessment and then they announced a public town hall that was happening in December and I attended the public town hall it was just to get like community input on the most appropriate areas for expansion and there's over 200 people there and I witnessed like one of the greatest public oppositions to any city initiative in recent memory um, I think the <laughs> consultants might have been a little shocked they were expecting people to just give suggestions for where to expand, but basically everybody spoke in opposition to the boundary expansion saying, we don't want the boundary expansion. Um, you know, we're in a climate crisis. We can't be annexing farmland and wetlands and things like this. Um, so yeah. And then Margaret, I was, I was in this email chain that Margaret had with some local people and environmentalists and I had noticed the rise of stops for all Hamilton stops for all Halton. And I think it was around that time that stops for all Hamilton, they ended up winning and getting their council to reject the urban boundary expansion um and i was like mm -hmm. oh my gosh like this is a model for success and it's a replicable model um and if like we can sit in zoom meetings and email chains and talk about this and why we don't want this but we need to actually do something and start some sort of campaign so yeah i pitched the idea to margaret and she was all for it and so then i sent uh, the idea to the email chain we had a meeting going and it just kind of took off from there mm -hmm. what do you think you know what do you think people that have latched on this campaign like about it? Um, I think people just want spaces where they can connect with others about how we live our lives and relate to each other and like an open democratic forum where we can do this. And most people care about environmental protection, but there's just not many outlets to connect about this and make meaningful change. So I think, to have like especially with the Facebook group I find like it's just an open democratic forum where anyone can post and interact and share ideas and resources and and to have that and feel like you're a part of something big a part of a movement that's big and has a tangible goal um, which is obviously rejecting our urban boundary expansion and I forgot to mention that um, the number um, like the amount of land really is trying to um, annex is 939 acres so almost a thousand acres um, so yeah just coming together and like working together and, you know, getting involved, writing to council, getting a lawn sign, showing public dis displays of support and connecting with your neighbors and, and your friends and, and talking about real issues is, is meaningful for people. It's, it's meaningful community uh, building, right? And I think mm -hmm. going back to the Aurelia thing a little bit um, with the details, 
it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought that there was, you know, when the consultant said, well, we only need a little bit of land here, but when we really forecast out and we think about how much, you know, people could be coming or what we could be doing, it was like, if we're going to annex, we might as well annex more than what we need in the immediate future, just to make sure mm-hmm. that we have enough versus like, we've crossed all the T's and dot all the I's and we're going to only take as much as we absolutely need right yeah and i was shocked that that was like explicitly stated that this is like an overestimation way more than we even need and and then the other thing with the land needs assessment is that one of the slides says like um other options are planning for higher intensification like that was among the range of options and it's like why are we not looking at planning for intensification before we're just recklessly looking to expand the boundary like where's the intensification plan why is this just considered like at the very last slide among another range of options? Like why, why isn't this being looked at first? Right. How, how many, uh, sorry, how many hectares did you say the proposal the proposed expansion was? Um, 939 acres. Right. Almost a thousand. The, um, sorry, did you have a follow-up question, Adam? <laughs> yes, but my dog was barking. Um, <laughs> The uh, almost a thousand hectares, acres, acres. Okay, yeah, wow. they use hectares. Like they, they, it's three hundred and eighty hectares. Um, but one of the little tips I got from the Stops for All Hamilton organizers was to convert hectares into acres when you're talking to the community. So three hundred eighty hmm. hectares equals nine hundred thirty nine acres, which looks bigger because it is huge amount of land. And I don't know if it's just technical reasons why they use hectares or it's to make it look smaller, but yeah, we've been referring to it as acres. So that's about, so the current size of Aurelia is just over 7,000 acres. Mm -hmm. So that's about one seventh of the size. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a large, large expansion for, and and for, you know, it's a small city. It's, it's 31,000 people. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Something like that. And what do do you off the top of your head? Do you have the number that uh, the population that they're supposed to plan yeah, for? I think it's about forty nine thousand. So <laughs> to, to be forty nine thousand. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, but if you do that math uh, for a second, they fit thirty one thousand yeah. and seven thousand hectares, right? Or yeah. 30, so we're talking about they're going to put. 10, an additional, what, 10 or 10 something thousand in a thousand? You know what I mean? Like how much they already have fit into 7,000. Now all of a sudden they need a larger proportion to fit just a small <laughs> fraction of that. Like right. it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty ridiculous. Uh, and I, I think anybody that's been through really would, would not look at it as a very dense community. I mean, go, mm-hmm. I looked at some Google maps and if you go look by where the Costco and the university is like talk mm-hmm. about poster child for sprawling, oh, you know, yeah. housing, like it just ridiculous. Yeah, I, did, right? well, I did a presentation today to a high school class of it stops for really. And I was trying to like, put the idea of urban sprawl into simple terms to make it easily understandable. And I kind of just said to the students, think West Ridge and Aurelia, which is like what you're talking about, the Costco area. And then when I tell people that they're like, ah, say no more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and, and I think that the, the, the principle that you, uh, is putting the, the cart before the horse a little bit, right? Like they, Aurelia is, not you know as as has been mentioned it's not a dense built form currently and that has a whole bunch of different and again you know back to these externalities that has a whole bunch of consequences mm-hmm. uh much uh, a, a greatly increased reliance on car use right mm-hmm. so for for most people in Aurelia and this is the same for most communities in Canada and certainly in Simcoe County, you have to get in your vehicle to be able to buy groceries, just to, to get food mm-hmm. for fuck's sake. You need to get in a car. You need to own a car. Mm-hmm. And that's an incredibly um, unreliable form of development, mm-hmm. right? Like that in, in, if you want to build resilience, you want people to have options, different types of options and especially options in the ways that they are able to access the things most necessary to live. Mm-hmm. If you, if you rely on a car to get food, what if the, you know, if the roads wash out, if there's a natural disaster, gas prices are too high and you can't fill up your tank. <laughs> exactly. And that's another <laughs> thing, right? Gas prices. 
<laughs> exactly. All those sorts of things. And then there's also the the effects that that car use um, and the corollary uh, reduction in walking um, has on physical health of people and the expenditures that we have to put towards healthcare. Um, cars are the leading killer of kids. It's an insane amount of children that are killed by cars every year and, and all these sorts of things. So that principle that you, you, you build a community up to become something that is sort of your ideal version, right. Of what a community can be, Mm -hmm. but that, for for the development that happens in our area, for some reason, there's this sort of weak, weak work that happens towards that kind of thing. And then it just, they expand and all of that work that they've put into trying to intensify, uh, create communities where um, transit is more cost effective uh, because transit relies on, on um you know, the, the, the number of people using it, um, otherwise it relies on, um, you know, um, taxpayer support and this sorts of, so. anyways, the, the, the work that's put into trying to create these communities that really are complete communities that are truly resistant, that are, uh, resilient, that are healthy for people to live in, um, it just collapses as soon as we expand outwards like that, because it's just, it, it's all, Time and time again, it's the root of least resistance that our politicians take, and that is almost always building suburban development. Yeah, and mm-hmm. it's like Margaret said, it just seems lazy almost, or it's like it's been this way for it so is. long, so why should we change? And I've been actually doing like deep dives lately into the history of of city planning and urban sprawl and zoning, and like the history of it is crazy if you look back to like well, in the 1910s, there were like laws that were ov- overtly racist and explicitly prohibited people from buying property if they were a racial minority. Um, and then, you know, a couple decades later, R1 zoning was introduced, which was basically to maintain white-only neighborhoods and subdividing them into sections where it was only legal to build big, expensive single-family homes. And just the exclusionary history and of suburban sprawl and, and the roots of these things is crazy and and we, yeah, it's crazy that city politicians are actively trying to change this and go for complete community. Every oh, so often on social sorry. media, I come across one of those videos of the bridge that is, and there's a few of them around, and I think mainly in the U.S., but the bridge that is just slightly too low for trucks to be able to get under it. <laughs> have, you, have you seen these? And they're driving along and they don't, they don't uh, heed the warning signs and they, the, the top of the of the cargo of the container is just sheared off. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a reason why bridges were built low, right? You know, do you know why? I don't know. Well, it was so buses couldn't go under them mm-hmm. because buses were the, the mode of transportation for poor people. And for the most part, poor people were racialized people. Mm-hmm. So they were a means of keeping people out of those out of areas where they didn't, where they were undesirable. And, you know, and we can't also forget that the fossil fuel companies and the uh, developers and auto manufacturers back, you know, once where they were trying to put a car in everybody's driveway, all of a sudden came up with this wonderful plan that they sold to the Americans, which we then easily adapted, adopted as well, which was like, hey, you can build these really far flung communities. You have a nice drive, nice windy road. Like there was an actual campaign to ensure that this type of development became the the go-to, right? All of the facts, all of the things that we needed, not only did it keep certain people out, it also provided, you know, a lot of whole new consumers to get into cars and to get into the white picket fence mentality. And we really haven't erased that yet. <laughs> and yet we're seeing community inequity increase. And I know that's something that Stop Sprawler really is really like focused on is like, the affordability of the housing that's being provided, like what type of community, what type of equitable community are you providing? What kind of business environment, right? Like I I know that it's not, 
I know that Stop Sprawl Aurelia, same with Stop Sprawl Hamilton, sounds just very simple, but when you dig into it, it's not just about stopping something. It's about mm-hmm. choosing a better alternative, right, Madeline? Oh, exactly. Yeah. It's it's been really crazy to to realize how much land use planning and and um, urban sprawl and intensification, all these things like shape our lives, our everyday lives. I used to never think about it, but it really is. Um, yeah, it impacts every aspect of our life, like housing, the environment, food security, transit, all these things. And yeah, to the affordability um, point you made. Yeah, that's been been a really big um, part of our campaign. And, and it's also a big argument that people try to use against us, like, you know, the classic argument that we need we need more homes. There's an affordability crisis. So if we build more homes, like the whole supply and demand argument, um, which is very flawed, but um, yeah, so that's one of the hardest parts of the campaign is just trying to tackle this misinformation and, and people generally come from a good place. Like if their argument is that, well, we need to expand because we need affordable housing. Like that's, that's coming from a good place. And, and we can all agree that we need affordable housing. It's just coming to that common ground of how, we can actually get affordable housing and the fact that urban sprawl is not a sustainable and meaningful solution to the affordable housing crisis. And, and who is, who is urban sprawl really for? If you follow the money, you can typically find it. Oh, for sure. And if you think about it, like the rules that we have, the system we have set up now have been in place for, for, for decades, as you were kind of mentioning earlier. So we are basically saying, just let the system do what it's been doing. It's been going Mm -hmm. fine. And really, it has to be going fine. How many different choices of housing do people have in Aurelia, right? How many people can actually find attainable housing or rentals in Aurelia? And it's not just one government's fault or one municipality's fault. I mean, at the base of it is, like you said earlier, zoning and and provincial policy. All of those things really haven't done what they were supposed to do to make housing more affordable. So why would we allow the system to keep producing more of the same? And I think that's where I've had a couple of people go, oh yeah, that's right. Like we keep sprawling onto farmland and it's, it's almost like the highway thing, right? If we just keep building more sprawl, eventually we'll get to the point where we have so much we won't need anymore. Just build one more highway. <laughs> eventually the congestion, the congestion will stop, right? Well, Again, with the with the costs uh, that come with that form of development, the loss of agricultural land, the loss of uh, habitat for wildlife, and on and on, uh, carbon sinks, carbon sequestration, all these sorts of things, uh, flooding um, prevention with wetlands, all these. There's there's so many um, costs, externalities associated with this form, so that is one. But another thing with the affordability argument that is rarely, rarely, rarely addressed. And it drives me nuts by all of, I mean, I don't, I don't know what the deal is with housing. Uh, it's, it's, it's a weird kind of group think um, like on Twitter and things like that. But one of the things that is rarely ever addressed is the fact that it's a basket of things, affordability. It's not just the cost of a house, right? The need to own a car. That's that in Canada. And we, we've uh, cited this stat a number of times in Canada, the, the cost of car ownership. And this is from a few years ago now, not many. It was relative relevant up until recently, I, I'd assume with the, the cost of gas increasing considerably. But the cost was ten thousand dollars a year per car. Yeah. You know that's so that's. And that's not if for you a don't beamer. have to own a car. <laughs> that's no, just for basic. No. Well, that's on average. That's on average. Yeah. So you could have have some cheaper, and you can have some ex- some more expensive, of course. But that's on average. It's ten thousand dollars a year in Canada to own a vehicle, um, and that includes you know, the cost of maintenance and and insurance and all these sorts of things. But if you didn't have to own a vehicle, if you, you know, so you're, you're a family with your typical uh, two vehicles, there's plenty out there that have more than that, but $20,000 a year, you could be putting towards something else. What would that be? You know, that's, that, that's a huge uh, affordability variable right there. The, uh, again, I mean, the health benefits that come from living in walkable communities, being able to walk your kids to school, uh, 
it, it, you take the savings that you have, uh, you work a day a week, uh, a day less a week, right? Then you're able to sort of um, create community uh, cooperatives for daycare where you can sort of trade off with each other and, and, and look after kids in the street on in the street, on the, on, on the street, whatever on, on your street, um, driving costs down. There's, there's, there's all kinds of opportunities, options that all of a sudden open up when you start building communities that are actually for people instead of cars. And that's, that's this whole affordability, um, it's a bit of a farce uh, as long as all you're looking at is the cost of a house. Mm-hmm. Um, you, yeah, you have so to look at the community affordability, right? And I was yeah. just going through the travel survey here from Simcoe County because there's some data that I pulled. Almost 25% of all households in the county own three or more vehicles. Oh, wow. It's, it's huge. And Barry and Aurelia are the top work locations of workers within the county. So, you know, Aurelia has an economy that draws a lot of other residents to it and sprawling isn't really going to help with that because it, you need, you need somewhere for the workers to, to live. The other thing is that in Simcoe County, 30% of all home to work trips are under five kilometers, right? 40% of them are under 15 kilometers. So there's this feeling that like we need to have more roads and more cars. But when you start looking at the data, you go, well, actually that's not a very long trip you probably could plan it other ways or people are mostly going to these locations. So what if we just provided housing in those areas so that people didn't have to drive to Aurelia or drive to Barrie and they could actually afford a house in there. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and interestingly traffic congestion, like in the built up areas or in the cities, uh, Barrie really, that sort of thing. Traffic congestion was the lowest major concern of all the residents. The biggest concern was safety, mostly to deal with drivers. So this whole development pattern isn't really matching with what people are feeling, uh, how they want their communities to move forward. And I thought maybe you could outline a little bit about what you guys see from Stop Sprawler, really the kind of community you'd like to, to ensure happens. Yeah, I think definitely, well, upgrading our transit system. We have these huge honking buses in Aurelia that there's usually like upwards of maybe five people in them. And the buses only come every half hour. Bus routes don't <laughs> come to every area of Aurelia. They don't run long enough hours. There's all sorts of flaws within the transit system, as well as it just being expensive. And they are raising the price every year. Um, so yeah, an active transit system is important with more efficient um, buses. And then there's the food issue. Um, through Green Aurelia, um, well, Jacob and I, we actually made this um, map of food deserts in Aurelia. Um, just pulling up here so I can refer to it. But um, it stems from this whole idea about um, food deserts and food apartheid. Um, so there's this map, the food map of Aurelia that shows kind of grocery stores and, and places to access food within the city. And then the next um, photo we show is a low income map of Aurelia. And you can see that they're directly related. So the areas with um, the lowest income have the least access to grocery stores, um, which obviously harms low-income people in a lot of ways. It's it's more expensive to go to more affordable grocery stores, so then they usually have to spend more money at more expensive grocery stores because they're closer. Um, also, over-dependence on conveniently located fast food options, disproportionately higher rates of easily preventable diet-related illness and disease as a result of food insecurity, um, all these things. So, yeah, creating more... Um, food access options, especially in lower income areas, and as well as just not paving over um, farmland to increase current or future food security. Um, that's another common argument is like, oh, people, no one's even farming the, the current farmland in the area. And it, it's like, it doesn't matter whether someone is currently farming it or not. Like, if we pave it over, once it's gone, it's gone forever. So you never know what can happen in the future where that land will be, will be passed down to or how it will be utilized for food security. Um, so yeah, two of the main ones are definitely the transit system and, and food security. And don't you find Madeline that really at the end of the day, this is something that I find and I know Adam and I talk about it is that 
like really governments are just asking the wrong questions. We're, we're debating about, you know, or the government's debating about whether they're going to sprawl tall or sprawl wide or build highways. And no one's talking about housing as a right. Yeah. <laughs> like what if you just said everyone should have a right to a house? Mm-hmm. What would that do for the conversation and <laughs> how we build our communities? Or what if everybody has a right to be able to access groceries uh, within a three kilometer two kilometer radius. I don't know, like pick a, pick a number, right? What if we said everyone has a right to fresh water? Like it's so amazing that, or, or, or Ontarians have to be focused on increasing our food security. Mm-hmm. It's all of these long-term kind of questions that nobody's really asking. And we're, and, and as a, as a population, we're stuck in the, in the weeds about, you know, well, should we build this or that or where or how? And we're fighting over, like, it drives me nuts that in this day and age, with all of the science we have with climate and biodiversity, that we're still tinkering around whether we should build highways through a protected green space. I, like, we have big fish to fry here. And not saying that building a highway is a little thing, but this should be an issue we've moved past, similar to the annexation with Aurelia. Do we really have to be talking about whether how much wetland and farmland we're going to be um, paving over for actually roadways and more commercial buildings that may not even have people in them down the road for more tiki-tacky kind of like McMansions. Like, mm-hmm. is that a conversation that we should even be having now? And it's so frustrating to feel like we're pulled into these really outmoded ways of community development and we're missing the big picture here. And it's mm-hmm. like, you know, Strop Sprawl really it can really help bring awareness to those big issues, but there's such, so much resistance, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and it's so hard when our um, it feels like our whole province is essentially run by bankers, developers, and and home builders. I mean, yeah, if, if you look at a graphic that's like shows the developer ties to the PC party, it's it's insane. Um, and so you can tell where different interests lie and who um, politicians are trying to please. And then there's also the affordable housing report that recently came out. Um, that's, yeah, basically what you would expect if you brought together these bankers, developers, and home builders. And the affordable housing report um, explicitly states that building affordable housing is outside its mandate, and it never once mentions the term rent control. I was reading about this. Um, so is it really an affordable housing report? So, just just more affordable housing for people that probably can already afford it. Yeah. Let's, right? I mean, that's, that's really, if we're cutting to the chase, that's kind of what we're getting at, right? There's a difference between atta- attainable housing and housing as a right versus what is going into what is affordable housing. Oh, sure. Just mm-hmm. increase the supply so that everybody that's making over 150 grand, 200 a year can afford a cheaper house. But what about the remainder of the population that's well, like, which is a majority of the population is below that? What solutions do you have for them? Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that like the greatest benefit of this campaign beyond stopping sprawl is just trying to bring people together and and take the power back and, you know, assert that this is, this is our community and people should be put before profit and we have a right to um, determine how our community is shaped for future generations. kind of feel like municipalities have been tricked a little bit hoodwinked like they they think they think development is actually about housing because it's developers i don't think actually look at development as if it's uh, housing is 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 almost secondary housing is housing is is a well it's a profit maximizer right so where where you have access to a lot of land. It makes sense to build low and spread out um, initially. That's that's just what you're. That's that's what's going to convert your investment in that land into the greatest profit. Where you don't have a lot of land, it makes sense for developers where there's demand uh, to build high, um, or at least to build as high to 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 a height that justifies the demand because above a certain uh, you know several floors, the height of development goes up considerably. So 
This is why, uh, for instance, on Billionaire's Row in New York, and that's where the demand is. You're not going to see that built form replicated in very much in, in very many other places. But if you look at it through that lens, that what's actually important is the land. And there's this old saying, which is something along the lines, I'm probably butchering it, but buy land because they aren't building any more of it. Uh, you know, if you look at it through that lens, that land is what is actually the important thing. If a municipality were to do that, they would be they would be looking at the land that they have and they would be looking at how they can maximize the utility of that land. Right. They, you wouldn't have vacant lots scattered all throughout the municipality. They would be maximizing, they would be pressuring the landowners to build on those in the most efficient, effective built form that contributes to the, the life of the city in the best way possible. But I don't, you know, but but municipalities, for some reason, they, they've been tricked into thinking that this is this is somehow somehow about housing or, or, or you know, the buildings themselves. I mean, they're they are, as Margaret said, they're the byproduct. It's about maximizing getting the best value out of what you've got. That's what developers do if they're successful. Right. If a developer isn't going to do that, they're going to they're, they're not going to last long in the industry. Uh and we see that dynamic in municipalities. You know, if municipalities were a business, they would have gone bankrupt by now. Almost all of well, them. Frankly, a lot of them are teetering on it already. I mean, all you have to do is look mm-hmm. into how much money they owe for infrastructure, right? That they're not keeping up. And so I, there's that whole thing, hate the player, hate the, hate the game, not the player. And I think it's um, really easy to always hate on the developers, but, they're only playing within the rules generally, generally within the rules that they're allowed to play within. And right now the rules are set up that you can make housing a commodity. You can jack up the prices of it to increase your own profit. You don't have to treat it kindly. You don't even have to do environmental assessments if you get the right connections, right? Like there is a very lax um, control system that recognizes to like Adam said, about the importance of land. And even if they recognize the importance of land, they're still looking at it from a GDP perspective. Like how much money can we get from this piece of land versus how do we focus this land on the well-being of our constituency, which is not a a thing that many governments are dealing with, which is where those big questions lie, right? (laughs) They lie in the, what is the well-being of our community? I know that's something that that you guys are thinking about too. Um, I have one question about it, Madeline, is that, you know, you're a younger person, younger than me, which isn't hard anymore. Um, I'm turning 45 soon, got another week or so. Uh, so yay for me. Um, and I know that Aurelia prides itself on its climate friendly, progressive nature. So how do you, how do you square that? Peg, like, how do you how do you make that work? Is it um, is it that the city isn't aware of that this leads to climate? Is it that it's it's their climate action is more performative? Like, where do you how do you how do you make those two things jive? Yeah, essentially the latter. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really is coming up with this climate change action plan um, that they're developing, and and it's mostly about. Uh, greenhouse gas emissions and um, center a lot. I think there's three main categories like transportation and then like buildings and retrofitting, that kind of thing. And then I can't remember what the third one is, but those are the main ones is like, yeah, vehicles and, and buildings. Um, and it's great that we're developing a climate change action plan. And some like, I think five around 500 municipalities in Canada have de- declared us climate emergency or really is not one of them interestingly um but it doesn't seem like the city wants to acknowledge the way that land use planning affects climate change because there's no talk in the climate change action plan so far of land use planning or intensification or protecting farmland and wetlands not expanding the boundary um so yeah i can't help but see it just as greenwashing by creating this climate change action plan um not to mention that it just doesn't seem accessible like if so much of this climate change action plan is promoting 
electric vehicles, which are so expensive and inaccessible for most of the community. It's like, is this really a community climate change action plan? I'm not hearing a lot of talk about um, creating a robust active transit system. And yeah, and then there's the whole inch farm controversy recently where um, the city is allowing the inch farm to be developed, which is a wetland and um, basing it off of an environmental assessment from over 30 years ago. And there's local experts saying that it is a wetland and it's still a debate whether or not it is a wetland. So yeah, land protection. Oh, I know this well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it, it does, it feels like greenwashing for sure. What do you find as a, as a young adult, like, you know, you don't just speak for all younger people by any stretch, but as a young adult who's now organizing, what do you find most frustrating about this whole issue? Oh man. Um, probably just, hmm. I would say, yeah, just kind of the trolls or, or the misinformation or it's like, we're going in circles about about the details of the issue. It's like, oh, we should be doing this or we should be doing it this way or, you know, like just <laughs> getting too hung up on the details and the best way to go about things and, and what the real root of the issue is. But it's like we all know deep down that we're in a climate emergency and we want to protect, we need to protect farmlands and wetlands and, and that we need affordable housing. Like we know the bare bones facts, but it's like it just – feel so frustrating to efficiently organize people. Um, yeah. I mean, it's like, we know the problem. So let's look at solutions and work together to do this, but it can be frustrating uh-huh. feeling just yeah trying to organize. <laughs> well, which is why the IPCC report, when it came out said one of the, the biggest barriers to uh, climate action is misinformation of the political class and, mm-hmm. and consultants from the fossil fuel industry or those that would benefit from fossil fuel uh, mm-hmm. production, right? So mm-hmm. it becomes really difficult. There is a thing, and I, I know I've talked to you about it privately. We've we've had some kind of conversations about organizing and that sort of thing. And uh, it becomes really difficult because it's assumed that if you are in the political class, that you have the authority and the facts and nothing that you say should be challenged, right? It's just, well, this person said it, so this must be true. And then the people that are, you know, local organizers, people who've done their research, local experts, like whatever, all of a sudden have to get fact-checked like five times. And are you sure that's right? But they said this, and we have to worry about the balance between what you said, which is verifiable, and what they said, which isn't verifiable, right? Like, it makes it very, very challenging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, 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 it gets easier. And especially dealing with trolls on public forums like Facebook and these things, like I find if you just stand your ground and say it in a common, respectful way and just like stick with the facts and you keep the dialogue going rather than just attacking each other, like you typically can get to some sort of common ground. Like there was this one person who was commenting on one of our news articles and just, you know, totally questioning everything and and disagreeing but then you just i i well me and a few other people we kept commenting back and forth with like facts and staying calm and trying to find a, a common ground and by the end he was like yeah wow like that that was very you articulate your points very well like you, you make good points it's hard to disagree with that so yeah i mean even if people are disagreeing just keeping the dialogue open and trying to find some sort of common ground has mm-hmm. been helpful for me at least yeah absolutely Adam, do you have a question before we get close to wrap up here? Yeah, I would add to the uh, consultants obfuscating. I don't know why my mouth just sort of seized up when I said that. Uh, there is a growing industry of environmental consultants as well. Um, A lot of them are employed by municipalities. Certainly a lot are employed by uh, industry and things like that. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily say the work that they are doing is greenwashing, but it fits into a particular a system, a process that is to a fairly high degree exclusionary. 
Um, you know, so you mentioned uh, at the outset there, the town hall, um, the public town hall that they had on this. Uh, you know, these are often sort of set up in a way that only only certain people who are willing to willing and able to engage in a certain way are able to participate. Right. So, I mean, first of all, you've got to be comfortable with speaking in public and, and, and confronting, uh, people who are established as experts. And that can sometimes be overcome, even if it's a scary thing, but there are people for whom that is an insurmountable barrier. Um, and there's a lot of other things that go into this, Margaret, and I have talked about this a lot in the past, but the, the, the work and effort that citizens are expected to do on their own time, in addition to everything else that they do, to be able to engage in these processes, mm-hmm. right? And even then, it is not considered to be on an equal footing. I mean, there might be some lift service uh, given to it being equal footing, but I don't think that's actually how it's received. So these, you know, environmental consultants are, are situated within a process that is exclusionary and that filters information in certain ways to certain places that reinforce certain hierarchies and power structures Mm -hmm. and all of, all of, all of which to say that it's, you know, for organizing citizens, for grassroots organizing, for citizen participation, for democracy, right. Which is really what we're getting at here for democracy, for democratic participation, for determining how your communities uh, take shape in an active and positive way. Um, those are difficult things uh, within the system that we've got. And uh, unfortunately, I guess in a sense, it's maybe, imp- it's not intentional greenwashing, but in some ways that's the effect because when you have consultants who are, you know, they have degrees in the area, for instance, in environmental studies or what have you, um, and but they work for firms that are employed by municipalities and things like that. Mm-hmm. They give some cover, I think, to the decisions that are made, mm-hmm. even though the processes that have made those decisions are the same processes that have made and contributed, constrained, shaped decisions that are environmentally destructive, right? So mm-hmm. I think that they are uh, complicit in this to a degree. I think that there there has to be um, some recognition that the system is broken, that oh. the processes that serve that system need to be addressed and changed. Mm-hmm. And um, that's, I think, the stuff that groups like yours, like Stop Sprawl, Aurelia, like the other Stop Sprawl organizations, that's that's part of the work that you guys are doing and and doing really successfully and i think that i mean it's not going to be easy but it's it's uh it's really important work and i think that we should all be very grateful for it so a hat tip to you there madeline thank you back to your question margaret about like what the hardest part of this is i'd say another hard part is just trying to even yeah kind of like what adam's talking about is like get easily accessible information like um, part of the landings assessment was like there was a map on one of the slides of the report and it was like showing um, a map of Aurelia and it had a legend that like showed areas where there's more potential for infill and vacant spaces and I'm like I'm zooming in on this map on the report but it's like blurry because it's some sort of screenshot or something so then I email city staff asking for a high resolution version of the photo to like see the intensification options and then they just tell me that it was produced by consultants, not in-house. And so they don't have a photo and they can't give me it. So it's like just things like this. It's like, it's hard to even get involved if you want to, because of, yeah, this like non-participatory undemocratic system that we live in. So that's another Mm. super frustrating part. And like, luckily I have the time and energy and resources to try to do deep dives into these things, but most people don't. So Mm -hmm. 
Well, we know that life well, Madeline, as you know, because we've had these conversations of like trying to access information. And then I always love the comments that are like, don't you guys have anything better to do? Yeah, actually, we have a lot of stuff we would rather do, but you can't. Once you, when it's almost like the the matrix, you know. Once you've taken that pill, you're like, okay, well, I have to make sure that this actually is the answer that's supposed to come out, right? So, mm-hmm. I get it. Um, we're just going to wrap up here, and I wanted to give you a chance to talk about how to connect with Stop Sprawlerilia, how people can help. I'm sure Adam will put some stuff in the show notes too, so there'll probably be a website link or a, you know your Facebook mm-hmm. group. But I'd just like to hear it from you about how people can get involved, how to get a hold of you, where to find out more information. Thanks. Yeah. So um, we have our website, stopsprawlerilia.ca, and most of the um, details and action items are on there. Um, but our, I'd say there's like four key action items we're pushing um, because something that, yeah, um, various mentors and stop sprawl organizers have drilled into me is like the key for this campaign is public visual displays of opposition to the boundary expansion so that council can see that like council needs to directly hear and see from us um so the key action items are emailing i'm sending an email to mayor and council we have a one-click email tool on our website um where you just um, put your email and then write a letter with and suggested points are mentioned so yeah emailing mayor and council um requesting a lawn sign the lawn signs are free or by donation and anyone in aurelia and um surrounding area can get one um signing the petition we have um, and then submitting a letter to the editor in Aurelia Matters is also very impactful. The news coverage um, goes a long way, especially for those who aren't on social media, like um, various elderly populations um, can find out about the movement this way. And then, yeah, following the Facebook and Instagram, we just hit 400 members in our Facebook group. So it's exciting. It's been growing. Um, and then, yeah, we also do take general volunteers. So we need help with um door knocking for lawn signs and then just driving around to help distribute lawn signs. And there's various other volunteer roles. Um, so yeah. And you can also email me at greenerelia at gmail.com. And yeah, I think that's all. That's awesome. Well, we really appreciate Adam and I are always uh, rooting for the grassroots guys because they never usually have enough help and never have enough resources and are doing a lot of heavy lifting. Um, so welcome to the club. And for those listeners that are out there that keep uh, thinking about, geez, how do I make an impact on climate? How do I make an impact for, you know, my children's future or for just people's future in general? Like this is one of those initiatives that you have, you know, youth leading it or younger, younger adults leading it that need anybody to come and help and, and, do not just think climate action is going to take care of itself at some federal policy level and, and rely on that. It's, it's in the trenches here, if you will, um, in your local community. So guess what? If you don't live in Aurelia, why don't you stop a stop sprawl um, initiative in your own municipality? And you can hit us up and we can connect you with Madeline and we can talk about it because uh, this isn't going to be won by just one single person. It's collective effort, as Adam and I talked about before. Yeah. And I also want to say a huge thank you and shout out to Margaret for all the support and mentoring thus far. I think um, having yeah, like different mentors like um, Nancy from Stop Sprawl Hamilton and Margaret have been super um, helpful for me and inspiring and empowering. So thank you. Woman supporting woman and youth supporting youth and all these things have been really awesome. Yeah, I'm I'm happy to to be there for you, and we're we're happy to uh, highlight your your cause for sure because we're all in agreement. Do you have any last words, Adam? Not last last words, but just last of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, but scary. Um, the uh, well, not really. Just uh, if you liked this episode and like any of the other episodes that you may have listened to, uh, please leave a rating on whatever platform you're you're using that really helps with the uh the profile of the show it helps us get heard more and um you know i don't know actually maybe this is another question of support i was just about to sort of do our pitch for support but madeline do you do you guys have a way to for people to donate oh yes i forgot to mention that um yeah we're partnered with small change fund um, to host donations online and um, through them we're able to provide charitable tax receipts so the link to that is on the website as well we have over a thousand dollars 
fundraised so far and then Stop Sprawl Halton also um, transferred some of their donation funds to us and we have some cash donations as well. So it's been really great and that helped us pay for lawn signs and hopefully if we get more donations, we can get more lawn signs. So yes, thanks for plugging that. All right. Amazing. Well, that, that is the, the support us uh, plug right there. So we, we can <laughs> and there's, find that. There's no, re- there's no reason for anybody to be upset because what you just heard was a whole bunch of people all over the province helping each other. This is mutual aid at the organizing level. So don't be down about what's happening. Actually, just realize there's lots of people that are coming out to help and you can be mm-hmm. a part of it too. Mm-hmm. Raw, raw. So that's that's smallchangefund.ca, and do you offhand know the like the campaign name? Um, Probably stop, stop sprawl Aurelia. Yeah. Stop sprawl Aurelia. Okay, and we're on there too. Right. Just so you know, we are. But if you if you, if you're making a choice, uh, <laughs> yes, do, I know. Yeah, do do the stop sprawl Aurelia this this time. This that'd time. be great. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for listening. And uh, we're doing this on a monthly basis now. Uh, So Margaret and I uh, keep our sanity (laughs) and uh, we'll see you in April. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Alan.